Good morning. This is the highlight of the week for us. It's good to be with all of you. The movie The Incredibles is a computer animated movie by Pixar about superheroes, but not just any superheroes, superheroes who have been asked, actually required by the government to stop, stop rescuing people. Early in the movie, a TV reporter explains, under tremendous public pressure and the crushing financial burden of an ever-mounting series of lawsuits, the government quietly initiated the superhero relocation program. The supers will be granted amnesty from responsibility for past actions in exchange for the promise to never again resume hero work. Amnesty from responsibility for past actions. What in the world could that be? Well, you see, one time, Mr. Incredible saved a train full of passengers from crashing off a bridge, plunging to their death, but some of the passengers on board sustained some minor injuries. You know, their, their neck was hurt, their back was hurt, maybe a broken arm or something, and those passengers sued Mr. Incredible. Another time, Mr. Incredible intervened to save a man who threw himself off of a building attempting to commit suicide. That man wanted to die, and Mr. Incredible interrupted his plans, and so he too sued Mr. Incredible. And these lawsuits against the superheroes begin to pile up. The, the world portrayed in the opening of The Incredibles is almost laughable at first until you stop and think about the real world that we live in and this litigious society of ours. And it's not all that far-fetched. One would think that everyone in need of rescue would want to be rescued. One would think. According to the Bible, the problem with the world is that human beings have rejected God, which has plunged the whole world into this fallen condition of sin. And the result is that we are powerless to rescue ourselves, but not just powerless. We are unable to recognize God's saving work, even when it's right in front of us, and worse, unwilling to receive it. That's all part of our fallen condition. Being in need of rescue is not the same as deserving to be rescued, or even wanting to be rescued. Being in need of rescue is not the same as deserving to be rescued or even wanting to be rescued. So is there hope for people like that? How do you rescue people who don't want to be rescued? That's what we see beginning to unfold in Exodus chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 11 through 25, and I want to invite you to stand with me if you're able out of our love and honor for God's holy word. Exodus 2, beginning in verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, 
He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let's pray. Father, you have spoken all the words in this book so that we might know you are the Lord. And you reveal yourself here to us. Would you give us eyes to see? Would you overcome our unbelief and our hardness of heart and our rebellion against you? And would you, by your grace, rescue us from our sin according to the power of your spirit and the truth of your word in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So as we've seen over the last few weeks, the first chapter and a half of Exodus, the the spotlight has been on several women in this narrative so far. We have seen how Pharaoh, the mightiest man in the world at the time, has been thwarted by faithful, humble, fearless women. The two midwives, a Levite woman, her daughter, Pharaoh's own daughter even. And and this is a, a frequent pattern in Scripture, as Greg pointed us to last week, that faithful women give birth to and raise sons who grow up to be faithful men who rescue and lead God's people. That happens over and over and over in Scripture. That pattern started with the first woman, Eve. Her name means life giver. God promised one of her sons would crush the serpent's head. And so that expectation then carries throughout the entire narrative of Scripture. That motif surfaces here in Exodus 2. Moses, last we saw him, was a baby boy in a basket floating down the Nile River, doomed to certain death, rescued providentially. He was nurtured. He was protected by courageous women of faith. And now he's grown into a man. And Exodus 2, 11 through 25, describes what happens when, in the words of Johnny Cash, the man comes around. I don't know if you've heard many sermons on Exodus 2, or maybe any. It's not like it's 
you know, wildly popular passage of scripture to preach. But if you have, there's a good chance you've heard it preached in this way. What we have here is Moses prematurely, sinfully even, taking matters into his own hands. Don't be like Moses. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't lose your cool. Just, just wait. Wait longer. A few modern commentators take this approach that they get hung up on the violence in this text and they feel the need to condemn Moses' actions and make it clear that was wrong. I'm not convinced that's the point of this passage at all. Rather, Exodus 2, 11 through 22 introduces Moses, no longer a baby, but now as a courageous man of faith who is providentially positioned by God to deliver God's people and yet rejected by the very ones God sends him to save. And by presenting Moses to us in this way, the text actually confronts everyone who hears it with a pointed question. Will you submit to and rely on the deliverer God supplies? I want to show you how that question emerges through this narrative. First, we see Moses, the believer, In verse 11, Moses unmistakably identifies himself with the enslaved Hebrew people. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Maybe you forgot, this is one of his people. Twice in this sentence, the narrator reminds us, these are his people. What's shocking is not simply the fact that Moses is a Hebrew by birth and by blood. We know that already from the story. What's shocking is the fact that Moses willingly chose at this point in his life to identify himself with the enslaved and oppressed Hebrew people in their affliction. Moses, remember, was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. She took him not as a foster child, but as her own son and raised him. And so he could have accepted his Egyptian identity. He could have lived out his days in luxury. He could have ignored the suffering of his blood relatives and gone on with his life and enjoyed all of the riches of Egypt. Instead, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he witnessed violent oppression firsthand in Egyptian beating a Hebrew. These are his people. And he made his choice. And he made his choice irreversibly when he killed an Egyptian to rescue that Hebrew slave from certain death. He burned all his bridges. This moment in Moses' life is called an act of faith in the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. Listen to these words. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You see, in the ancient world, To identify with a people meant to identify with the God or the gods of that people. This is captured in the words of Ruth, who was a Moabite, that she spoke to her mother-in-law, Naomi, when she says in Ruth 1.16, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Those two things go together. It's not 
merely an ethnic preference, a cultural preference, like, hey, I like your food better than our food. I like your style of dress better than our style. No, it's a a choice of the gods of that people or the God, in this case, of those people. For, For Moses to see the Hebrews as his people meant Moses worshiped the God of the Hebrews and not the idols of Egypt. But that choice meant Affliction, it meant suffering, it meant reproach and mistreatment instead of the pleasures and the treasures of Egypt. So why would Moses choose that? By faith, Hebrews 11 tells us. Because he believed God, he trusted God's promises. Well, what promises was Moses trusting? He lived by faith in the covenant that God had made with his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Listen to God's words to Abraham in Genesis 15.1. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Later in that same encounter with God, God says to Abram, Genesis 15, verse 13, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's God telling Abraham about this period of enslavement in Egypt, but... But, here's the promise, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That was delivered to Abraham, and it must have been passed down through generations. How would Moses have known these promises? Because by God's hand, he was nursed and raised by his Hebrew mother. and She must have mentioned the God of the Hebrews, to her son. Not once or twice, not just in passing, but again and again. You, my son, are a Hebrew. This is our God. These are his promises. Faith comes by hearing the word. There's no faith without the word. So Moses must have heard in his upbringing. And he believed. So this narrative presents Moses as a Hebrew, not, not just in name, not just in blood, but as one who was living by faith in the God of his fathers, trusting God to keep his covenant promises. He knew what God had promised to his people, and he believed God was going to do that. And the faith of Moses heightens our expectation that this providentially protected baby from the Nile, he really is a providentially prepared deliverer for God's people. And that expectation just grows in the next several scenes that unfold in this narrative where we begin to see Moses the deliverer. Verse 11 begins, one day when Moses had grown up. That word translated grown up means become great, become strong, become important. It's saying something not just about his age, but about his stature and his maturity as a man. So it doesn't just mean like he hit 18 and technically he's an adult now and he went out and in his boyish passion did these things. No, according to Acts 7 23, the New Testament, Stephen references this time in Moses' life. He says Moses was 40 years old here. So when it says he had grown up, we're talking 40-year-old Moses. Now he's a man with gravitas. Stephen highlights this in Acts 7.22 when he says, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. He was a man mighty in his words and deeds. He was a man of action. And this text recounts three separate occasions in which Moses acts as a deliverer. And any time 
a theme is emphasized through repetition, that should get our attention. And again, some commentators feel the need to condemn Moses here. I would argue rather that Scripture is presenting to us Moses beginning to act by faith as a deliverer, as a snake crusher. I feel safe saying that because that's the position of such giants in church history as Augustine and Tertullian and Calvin, but it's also the position of the New Testament, and Scripture interprets Scripture. Hebrews 11 says, Moses, by faith, when he had grown up, listen to Stephen's words in Acts 7, 23 and 25. When he, Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. So Moses had some sense of a call from God on his life at this point. In the first episode, verses 11 and 12, Moses delivers a Hebrew slave from death at the hands of an Egyptian. The, the verb used here to describe what the Egyptian was doing to the Hebrew is the same verb that's used to describe what Moses did to the Egyptian. The Hebrew, or the, the Egyptian taskmaster was striking the Hebrew slave. Moses struck the Egyptian. So the text does not imply that Moses escalated the violence or that he used excessive force, but it does demonstrate Moses was a just and dangerous man. It's likely that his Egyptian education included physical training. Not like, you know, pickleball and PE, but like how to handle weapons and hand-to-hand -hand combat. He probably learned some of that. John Calvin says, let us conclude that Moses did not rashly have recourse to the sword, but that he was armed by God's command and conscious of his legitimate vocation. That is, he was actually a high-ranking Egyptian official. He did have some legitimate civil authority. Conscious of his legitimate vocation, he rightly and judiciously assumed that character which God had assigned to him. Then we move on to the second episode, verse 13. Next day, he goes out, and now he finds two Hebrews brawling with each other, and one Hebrew is in the wrong, beating the other, striking his brother, his companion, and Moses steps in and breaks up that fight. I think it's significant that the early chapters of Genesis begin with a fight between brothers, Cain murdering Abel, and the early chapters here in Exodus, which we've seen again and again echo a lot of the beginning of Genesis. Here's a fight between brothers, only this one ends differently because this deliverer steps in and intervenes. And then we come to this third episode of Moses as a deliverer. He's in the land of Midian, which is located east of the Sinai Peninsula in the northwest corner. You know where modern-day Saudi Arabia is, far northwest corner there. Listen to these verses, chapter 2, 16 and 17. Try to picture this scene in your mind because it takes place so fast in these short sentences. But imagine what this would have entailed. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. There, there's safety in numbers. So seven daughters, probably that's why they go all together, because there's some strength in numbers, right? And yet, though they're not an easy target, they're still no match for this gang of shepherds when they show up. And there, there's kind of a hint in the text, their father was used to this, expected this, and they just dealt with it. So 
a gang of shepherds, strong and threatening enough to drive away these seven shepherdesses. And the text says, Moses stood up (laughs) and saved them. I'm just thinking through this scenario. It, It takes more than just shouting verbal warnings like, hey, knock it off if you're up against a whole gang of guys who are used to having their way here. This probably involved another physical altercation. He probably leaves with some bruises and lacerations. But we see his strength and his courage and his character once again stepping in to protect those who are weak and vulnerable. The language is unmistakable. Verse 17, Moses stood up and saved them. Verse 19, when they get home and they report to their father what happened, they tell him, an Egyptian delivered us. Delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds. Moses is a deliverer. He is strong. He is courageous. He is just. He's compassionate. He's a man who trusts God and he acts by faith. And so then he led God's people out of slavery and they lived happily ever after. Actually, there's a plot twist in here. This chapter of Moses' life comes to a close with Moses settling down in far off Midian. Far removed from the suffering the plight of his people. And why? Why is he so far away? Because when Moses came to his own people, his own people would not receive him. When he stood up to deliver in Midian, they did welcome him. Verses 13 and 14. Um, We see this rejection. He says to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Stephen calls that a retort. Who do you think you are? Maybe it's because he sees him as an Egyptian. Maybe he thinks you're just one of Pharaoh's men. We don't want anything to do with you. He's rejected by the Hebrews. Again, Acts 7.25, Stephen says, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand but they did not understand. They didn't understand. Contrast that rejection by his own people with the reception Moses received in the foreign land of Midian. When Ruel hears about what happened to his daughter, he blurts out in surprise, then where is he? I mean, you just left him there and you came home? Go get him. Bring him back. Let's feed him. Let's keep him. They are very happy to have Moses around to protect and defend them. And yet, even after Moses begins to settle down in Midian, builds a life, he gets married, he has a child, his exiled status was clearly on his mind. Consider the name he gave to his firstborn son, Gershom. This is interesting. Chapter 2 can be divided into two parts. Moses as a baby in verses 1 through 10, and then Moses as a deliverer in 11 through 22. And both of those parts end with the naming of a child. Verse 10 Pharaoh's daughter, she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Verse 22, Moses has a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. One ends with promise and hope and expectation. Something's happening. The other ends with this lingering question. What is happening? Why is he now so far removed from his people? Why is he a sojourner in a foreign land? But his heart is still with his people. 
It's still on his mind. I don't belong here. In fact, I don't belong anywhere. And I no longer belong with the Egyptians. I don't belong with the Hebrews. I'm out of place. Everything in Exodus 2 seems to indicate Moses is going to be the deliverer for God's people. But the people don't want a deliverer. And so the episode ends with Moses as a fugitive and an outcast. And that's why this question confronts everyone who hears it with that pointed question. Will you submit to and rely on the deliverer God's supplies? That's now the lingering story in the narrative here in Exodus. Will the Hebrews come to recognize and receive Moses as God's appointed deliverer? What's going to happen to them? Spoiler, that theme is going to carry on for a long time as they wander through the desert. The people grumbled against Moses will become a well-worn phrase if you've read this story. Exodus 15.24, 16.2, 17.3, Numbers chapter 14, Numbers chapter 16. The people grumble against Moses again and again, but the real issue is, as Moses reminds them, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And the question for that generation in the desert Will you trust God as he leads you through this deliverer? The question for you today is not, what are you going to do with Moses? But what will you do with one greater than Moses? The one whom God has provided to deliver you from bondage and slavery to sin. Hebrews 3.3 says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses left the riches of Pharaoh's house to join his brothers as slaves. Jesus left the riches of heaven to take on full humanity, to identify with us and say, these are my people. To look on our burden. Like Moses, Jesus was a man of gravitas. He was a good man and a dangerous man just and compassionate. And like Moses, Jesus was rejected by the very ones God sent him to save. John 1 says, he came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. Moses fled as an exile to Midian. Jesus would descend to the grave. Jesus is the true and better deliverer to whom Moses points. He is the one sent by God to rescue his people. And the question is, are you relying on him today? Are you trusting in him today to fully satisfy and secure you? Maybe you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. Maybe you've never put your faith in him. Then that's the question for you. Will you submit to and rely on Jesus today? Or maybe you do trust in Jesus, and you have fallen and been unfaithful. Maybe you gave in to temptation, believing that would satisfy you, and in so doing, you reject the satisfaction that God promises you in Jesus. Exodus 2 has more than a question that might leave you condemned. Exodus 2 offers you God's grace. Look at verses 23 through 25. During those many days, now Moses is far off in Midian, 
During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew, will Israel accept or reject deliverance from God? It turns out the answer does not depend on Israel, but on God, God's faithfulness. In our world today, people tend to assume that anyone who is mistreated, anyone who is oppressed is automatically virtuous on account of that. Exodus presents to us a people who, yes, they are oppressed, but they also are guilty of rejecting God. They do not deserve to be rescued. They didn't want anything to do with it the first time that came around. But the mercy of God is greater than all our sin. And God reveals himself here as a faithful, gracious God to stubborn, rebellious people. This is not the first mention of their suffering and their affliction and their slavery, but it is the very first mention of Israel crying out. It doesn't even say they cried out to God. It just says they cried out for help and they groaned. It implies they cried out to God because God heard them but the focus is simply not on Israel's efforts to get God's attention. All the focus is on God's attention to Israel's plight and his intention to act. What did Israel do? They groaned, they cried, as any of us would in their situation. What did God do? There are four verbs here. He heard, he remembered, he saw, he knew. One commentator says, those four verbs fall like successive hammer blows. I think they just sound like footsteps approaching. God is on the move. God heard and saw. That assures us God is aware of our suffering. God remembered and knew. That assures us God will do something about our suffering. When Scripture says God remembers, it means God's about to act. He's about to fulfill his covenant promises. It doesn't mean he had forgotten. Oh, yeah. That's right, they're down there still. Not that kind of remember. Genesis 8.1 uses this language, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. When God remembers a people, it means he's about to do something on their behalf. God's covenant commitment to his people never passes from his mind. His people are always on his mind. His promises are always before him and in his time, he will act. You and I, we might forget about the roast in the oven or the burgers on the grill. And then you jump into action and it's too late. God is never late. He doesn't come rushing in to find that he waited too long. Rather, God in his grace always, always, always takes the initiative toward people who don't deserve him. This is why there's hope for Israel. This is why there's hope for you and me today. Even though Israel rejected Moses, and even though it would be decades until they finally cried out for help, God had already been working to prepare a deliverer for them. I think that's the point of this whole story. Long before they ever cried out to God, God had been preparing deliverance for them. And that's how God has treated you. God, in sheer grace, takes the initiative to rescue powerless people. God, 
by his grace, overcomes our inability to recognize his saving work. God, in his grace, overcomes our unwillingness to receive his deliverance. Before you ever loved God. In fact, Scripture says, while you were still sinning, that's when Christ died for you. While you were still sinning, Christ died for you. And God, question to Moses, who made you ruler and judge over us? The answer is God did. Who made Jesus ruler and judge? God did by raising him from the dead. Have you placed your hope in him? And are you trusting him today? Not just for the salvation of your soul, forgiveness of your sins, but every other promise that he makes to you. Trust in him. He is a mighty deliverer. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have provided. Your arm is not too short to save. Our stubbornness and our rejection and our rebellion is not too much for you to overcome. We are humbled and moved to worship you when we consider your grace that though we wanted nothing to do with you, you resolved to have us as your people. And you came and you saved us and you made us your own and you've given us eyes to see. Would you open eyes this morning to see Jesus as the glorious deliverer that he is? It's in his name we pray, amen.